0: You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 89. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes to turn more using your favorite podcast app. Check us out at codingblocks.net
1: where We can find show notes, examples, discussion, and a whole lot more.
2: Send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. Follow us on Twitter at CodingBlox or head to www.codingblocks.net and find all our social links are at the top of the page. With that, I'm Alan
1: Underwood. I'm Jerzek. <laughs> and I'm Michael Outlaw. Datadog is a a software-as-a-service monitoring platform that provides developer and operation teams with a unified view of their infrastructure, apps, and logs. Thousands of organizations rely on Datadog to collect, visualize, and alert out-of-the-box and custom metrics to gain full-stack observability with a unified view of all their infrastructure, apps, and
0: logs at cloud scale. They've got 200... Turnkey two hundred plus I should say turnkey integrations, including AWS, Postgres SQL, Kubernetes, Slack, and Java. Check out the full list of integrations at datadog.com slash product slash integrations.
2: Yeah, and key features include real time visibility from built-in customizable dashboards, algorithmic alerts. We've been talking a little bit about our algorithms lately, like anomaly detection, outlier detection, forecasting alerts end-to-end request tracing to visualize that performance, and real-time collaboration.
1: And check it out. Datadog is offering listeners a free 14-day trial with no credit card required. And as an added bonus for signing up and creating a dashboard, they will send you an awesome Datadog t-shirt. So head to datadog.com slash codingblocks to sign up today.
0: So as always, we like to start off by saying thank you to everyone who left us a review. So on iTunes, we have char Char broiled string cheese. Yum. Or is it, (laughs) or would you say car broiled string cheese? No. no. Mm. No. Char. Nope. Char. All right. Uh, And Narnor, uh, I practiced this one before. Zhao Ying. 189, and boot manager. You think I got those right? I hope yes, I got it pretty right. Pretty good, man.
1: Yeah.
0: So like the the working out's
2: paying off. The working out. <laughs> <laughs>
1: anyway, you noticed? Uh, what, thank uh, you. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna be at uh, I'm gonna be Atlanta. Uh, Triumph return. I haven't been uh, back since I moved, so this is gonna be the first time in Atlanta in a couple of years now. Uh, For Code Camp 2018, I'm doing a session there about search engines. So if you are in the Georgia area, you should come check it out. And I think all of us are going to be there, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. All yeah, right, we I'll will be all be there. Guards. Joe is the only one you're allowed to kick in the shins. That's right. <laughs> that is correct.
2: I, I don't take kindly to that.
1: <laughs> yeah. If you can, I'm quicker than I look.
2: <laughs> awesome. All right, and then also, if you happen to be down in Orlando towards the end of September for Microsoft Ignite, I'll be there doing a session on Azure Functions and Cosmos DB and data pipelines and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I, don't, I don't know if that's closed or if there's going to be people in it, but, you know, come find me, say hi, and that's it. So we wanted to... Last on last episode, you know, we talked quite a bit about various different um, complexities with big O and that kind of stuff. And and we went deep on it, but we wanted to circle back and just do like a almost like a cliff notes version of this thing, because it's something that that a lot of people get intimidated by. And I think just having some of these quick and easy things that that might help stick in your head, you know, will will take you a little bit further. So we wanted to circle back to that. And so I guess let's start off, right? Whenever you have random access to an item that's that's o of one, that's that's basically when we were talking about like a hash table lookup or or a key lookup or something to where it can it quickly get to that item.
0: Like an array access.
2: Right. No or an index or an array, right? G go straight to item number five or something like that. So that's always going to be O sub one. Or O of n, O of one. Sorry, good lord.
1: <laughs> it always bothered me that hash tables were O of one, and, and like I, you know, I've read it, I memorized it, but it's just seemed weird to me. You have this hash table with a hashing algorithm, which is you know gets you close to uh, to array lookup speeds, but it's not. There's a there's a lot of stuff kind of going on underneath the covers, but they say it basically washes out to O of one. Uh, and I've seen in practice, like swapping stuff out for hash tables has been really fantastic, but it just hurts my soul to say that's O of one.
2: Yeah, because we know that there's other operations going on, but they say they're insignificant in the grander scheme of things, right?
1: Yeah, and uh, if you'd love to hear an episode on data, um, data structures, you should listen to them because there's a lot of ones I've kind of forgotten about, like heaps in particular. Like, uh, you know, you've been talking about graphs recently, like how to implement them and stuff. Um, definitely some stuff I could use a, r- a refresher on. So uh, if you want to hear that, let us know. We're thinking about it.
2: Yep. All right, who wants
1: to take the next one? Uh, list iterations are always O of n. Um, you know, have, like, even for an array or a linked list, it doesn't really matter the implementation. But um, generally, if you're kind of looping through all of your inputs, you know, just kind of logically, you can think of that as being a, an order and operation. Mike.
0: Yeah. So uh, summarizing from what we said last time, too, like if you see the same collection being iterated over in a nested loop, then you're in a O of N squared situation.
1: Yep. And uh, the uh, O log n that was like the divide and conquer type algorithms, which is another one that I've always found really unintuitive. It's like the, the money, the money hall problem. Remember that one?
0: Oh, is that the one where it's like a, uh, you get three doors.
1: Yeah. One has a pick car one and I'll take have it goats. away.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. And you pick one door and the host says, would you like to pick another door? You should always say yes because math.
0: Right, right.
1: Yeah, yeah. You, you know, think? Like, I mean, th- I've written a little program. I'm like, there's no way this is right.
0: Right, it was so, something like it works out in the beginning where you w- your your odds of picking the correct door in the first are like 33 percent per door, and so you think that when he asks you, do you want to pick another door, you still think, well, it's still uh, those two remaining doors would still be 33 percent each. Right. But it's actually like 50% or something like that. Is that right? Yeah. I just never understood
1: right? by choosing it. And I am left out the crucial part where like you pick a door and he says, hmm, you know what? This other door that you didn't pick is a goat. Do you want to change your answer? And you should always change your answer. And that's because you went from 33 and now you're at 50. But it, it never made sense to me. It's like, wait, well, like, why does changing your answer like, okay, if it's 50% now, like, why is it at 50%, t- you know, to stay the same? Like, I don't, I don't get it. Yeah. So, so going back real quick on this divide and conquer right
2: that was that goes back to the episode where we talked about algorithms like the the uh binary search and that kind of stuff right like it's taking a well known algorithm and being able to divvy up whatever the work is so then going into the next one, the O N login, which we've mentioned many times. And Joe even said on the last episode, like one of the tricks in, in an interview is you'll get something that, that is an obvious N squared. And then you typically want to try and bring it down to this O N login. And the way that's typically done is you have a, a list iteration or an, or, you know, some sort of enumerable, uh, iteration that's going to be O of N. And then, if you have an inner thing trying to use some sort of divide and conquer on that, and that will get you to O n log in.
1: Yep. And why do you drive on a parkway and park on a driveway? I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> right, sorry, sorry for the weird tangents. I'm sick. I'm sick, guys. Just leave me alone. <laughs> uh- uh, the worst one is uh, O of n factorial. You keep adding loops for every time a, an item is added, which we kind of talked about the permutations example there. Then you're O of n factorial territory, and uh, you know, good luck with that one. Yeah, I mean, your computer's going to melt.
0: And you want to think that O of n factorial is just theoretical and it never happens, but you will get asked those types of uh, you know, questions and situations.
2: And and again, going back to this interview thing, if you are interviewing with one of the big tech companies out there, be it a Microsoft, a Google, an Amazon, you know, Oracle, any of these big companies, you will be asked, what is the time complexity on this? What is the space complexity on this? Uh, can you improve the time complexity? Can you improve the space complexity? Why or why not? So being able to speak in this in this terminology will will matter.
1: If you're trying to prep for one of those big places, uh, one one good thing you could do is probably spend an hour at Starbucks trying to think of what you don't want them to ask you <laughs> and then practice for that.
2: Uh, that's amazing. And so tracking s- the coding interview, right? Pick uh, that yeah. book up. Just do it.
0: Would you say that um, in regards to like like interview-type questions that if you're given anything that's permutation-based or combination-based, that that's where it's a trick that you got to watch out for the n-factorial problems? Does that sound like a fair statement?
2: Uh, I think it's more, yeah, I think it more plays into what Joe likes. I think anytime that you see something like that, you need to step back and say, is there a mathematical approach to this? I think that's the first trick. And then the second one is just what you said, right? Like trying to get out of the, the crazy complexity because that's, that's something that I've seen a lot. Well, I right? guess, like, okay,
0: let me rephrase it a different way. Let me rephrase my question in a different way. What I mean to say is if they give you, if you see a question that's given to you, that's permutation or combination based, then the quote, like first, you know, your easy way out. Your first gut reaction might be to go down an in factorial path by mistake. And they're trying to like set the trap, right. And to see if you, if you catch it, does that sound like a fair statement?
1: Joe. Yeah, I feel like if they're already talking about factorials in an interview, it's just like
0: Oh, they won't <laughs> I'm already exhausted. It. They're not gonna tell you. Yeah. No, okay. I and so I
2: will say from my experience and in, in both sitting on these and being a part of these interviews, is they'll set it and see how quickly you walk into it, but then they'll also back up typically and be like, Could you do this better? And so they won't stomp on you the first time for doing it that way because it's the obvious way out. But then they'll see if if you can think your way out of it, you know.
1: Yeah, and uh, yeah, I don't think I've ever seen permutations come up in an interview, but I've heard of you know like some of the Google sample problems, like you've got twenty million boxes and thirty billion red balls, and how many? Ugh. <laughs> yeah, you know, like can I get some freaking Fibonacci or something?
0: <laughs> Next, <laughs> I think I read they don't do that anymore, though. They don't yeah. do those bizarre questions like, how many golf balls would it take to fill up a school bus?
1: Right. Yep, yep. that's good. I don't know. I don't know how you should interview, but uh, I don't think it should be crazy problems that you're never going to encounter in the workplace. Hey, man, this
2: is completely tangential, but I've always had the same thought. Like, I would almost rather get somebody in that that seems to do decent in an interview. Let them work for thirty days or something like that. And find out like what kind of chops does this person have? I, I've always felt like the the interview is it never hits it. You yeah. know, you'll get some diamonds in the rough that you didn't expect. You get some that felt like geniuses that you also are like, wow, this dude just really doesn't cut it. Like, or or gal, you know, not. I mean, it's just I don't know, man. I, I feel like interviewing software developers is a flawed process, and I really don't know a good answer to this to the problem.
0: Well, that's been our, our long running joke or my long running joke about like, you know, you, you, go through the process of the interview and with all the, you know, interview type questions and then, you know, your first ticket is like, okay, we need this, uh, this div moved three pixels to the left. And like, wait, what? Uh, we didn't cover that, anything like this in the interview. Is that
2: in login? <laughs> what is it? Depends on how yeah. you do it. If you do it right, you could do it in factorial. It's annoying. There you go. <laughs> there you
1: go uh Awesome. Oh, all right. Annoying.
2: So, so who's picking up the space versus time complexity here?
1: I right. can do that. Uh, okay. My name here. So, um, yeah, you know, we talked a lot about uh, time, um, and I think that's definitely the most common, you know, thing when people talk about Big O. They're almost always talking about time, but space does come up, and I was definitely caught flat-footed in, in an interview once where. Um, I solved the problem. I was, you know, in the middle, I pat myself in the back, and they're like, "Tell us about the the space complexity." And i like, <laughs> hit the brakes, and uh, I was just caught flat-footed. You know, like, I didn't know how to answer the question. I didn't have the language to really say it. Like, I could say, like, um, you know, I'm creating a variable every time. Uh, <laughs> that you know, I knew I knew about the stack and the heap, but I didn't really know how to express what was going on easily in an interview. and I'm sure I just sounded like an idiot. So that was kind of a lesson for me. And I still don't know that I could really, you know, give a concise answer. Like, I don't know how to really say like, Oh, the memory usage is O N squared. But I, I guess it sounds like it kind of boils down to the same type of thing. Like you can, yeah, you know, I, I still don't know how to do it. I definitely wouldn't feel comfortable doing an interview.
0: Well, you know, we have here in the notes that, um, you know as regards to like space complexity being about like where this the data is going to be stored for this and that you know um, specifically there's two ways the heap or the stack but there's also the disk that we didn't write down here because if you think back to some of our conversations around like um the remember the the sequel series that we did a while back, and we were talking about like path enumeration versus nested set models versus, uh, uh, closure tables, things like that, right? Like you de- can definitely get in, you can not, it doesn't have to be in memory, you know, heap or stack to when you have to worry about the space complexity of the output of your algorithm, right? So wherever you're writing that thing to, to for long term storage can matter too. And last episode, we actually referred to an example of uh, flash memory because, you know, maybe if you're working on, uh, you know, like a Raspberry Pi kind of project or some kind of small hardware device and you, you know, you just have a little bit of flash memory and you don't want to uh, wear level it too bad, right? Like then you might have to worry about like how much you're writing to the disc, how often you're writing to that piece of flash. Um, you, know, you know, not, uh, not to it mention much too, like, um, um, I
1: know Aztec. Aztag is, has mentioned a few times. He um, kind of uh, re-implemented some of the sorting algorithms. We were talking about it uh, in, in uh, this was a C plus plus, and he was kind of talking about how he was up making some small optimizations. And I think he was kind of like using um, you know registers judiciously and whatnot. And I thought it was kind of interesting because it's like that's never going to show up in any sort of big O for the, either the space complexity or time complexity, but it's something that makes a big impact on the the final results when you test it.
2: That is very true. Just because you're talking in big O notation doesn't mean there's not some real either nasty stuff that could still be there or, or really good stuff that just isn't accounted for, right? These are approximations. It's, it doesn't tell you the actual end performance.
1: Yeah. And, um, I thought it was really interesting that, um, that they left out the disc because like, that's so much of what I do on a daily basis. Like I throw something either, you know, on disk in some way, like through a database or some other sort of service or something that kind of caches something for me or stores it for me, and then I get it out later. And that is so much of the performance burden, like that network traffic or whatever, that that is usually so much more of the performance problems that I see on a day-to-day basis. And it's just funny to just kind of see that excluded here. And I don't know if that's an artifact of like this kind of being thousands of years old or whatever, <laughs> or, uh, you know, if... If just computer science is just not really equipped to deal with the, that kind of um, external reliance.
2: So one of the things that we have here too, is the the problem with using the the scope variables is those are stored in the stack and you have a very finite amount of space in the stack, right? Which which we put here, but that doesn't mean that the heap is infinite either, right? Like you still have, you're still tied to a certain number of resources in your heap as well. But it's just that it's typically orders of magnitude larger than what your what your stack is.
1: So yeah, and I, I looked it up for C sharp. Um, one megabyte for the stack and uh, 1.5 gigabyte for 32 bit heap and uh, up to 128 for 64. And some of that's configurable. It doesn't like just allocate that out of the gate. But one megabyte is absolutely fixed in in C-sharp.
2: That's interesting. That's not a ton. I mean, never really thought about it, but yeah. Yeah. It, 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 here's the thing. Like, we're talking about managed languages right now, like C-sharp, Java, that kind of thing. Uh, do I? It's been so long since I've done any C++. Do you deal with the heap in the stack in C++, or is it all stuff that you manage on your own?
0: Well, no, you still have you still have to deal with it. I mean, if no, you if you declare an still object, you create a new separate. object. If you create an object, then that's on the that's on the heap.
2: Okay, okay. It's just that you have to manage it yourself instead of a framework managing your heap and your and your stack for you.
0: Well, I haven't done any of the like C sharp latest. Or, sorry, not C sharp. C C plus plus. Like, where are they on like version eleven or something like that? Like, I think they've gotten it's come a long way in regards to garbage collection and memory management, if that's what you're referring to.
2: Yeah. That's what I was talking about. Okay. That's interesting. I mean, it's
1: been a long time since I've done any C++ work. So, uh, so if I malloc something, is that uh, intrinsically the, the, that's a C operation,
0: not a c plus C++, but yeah, you would be, you'd be getting memory from the heap. Okay.
1: And my cool. pointer is in the stack because it's going to live when, wherever, the, the scope that I declared it.
0: Yes, but it's pointing to the heap. Okay. Yeah.
1: And yeah, my understanding of the kind of the stack, it, I mean, it's, it's definitely rough. Um, but basically like whenever I call into a new function, like I've got, you know, any sort of pointers over to the heap, or I've got some value types that are kind of, um, you know, they've got their memory allocated there and that kind of gets added on a frame to the stack. And so like I can go through in my stack trace, or I can kind of inspect that and see like all the memory that's been allocated for that particular function call. And if we go into, like, say, an inner loop or something, then that's going to get its own uh, stack uh, entry or frame added to it. And then when that loop is over, it's going to clean up whatever it's not needed for. It's going to pop that stuff off the stack. And when that function is finished, it gets popped off the stack until, you know, the program is done when it gets back to that, uh, that, main, um, that main method there and it returns out of there and then we're done.
2: And then your heap in a managed language gets cleaned up over time. So where is your... Yeah. Whereas your stack, like you said, as you get out of the function, gets gets cleared off immediately, right? So, yeah, yeah,
1: I guess it it's really good. efficient in some ways because once your function is done, like any like value types or uh, any pointers that like aren't, uh, I mean, the pointers are going to definitely be cleaned up. Like everything that's in that stack frame is boom gone.
2: Yep. So one of the things that we were mentioning about with the with the stack here, though, is you can you can run out, or even with the heap, right? You could actually run out of space before you run out of time, right? Like when we started talking about these n-squared factorial type things, like, <laughs> you know, you might have all the time in the world, your computer can sit there and turn away, but you're going to run out of space trying to allocate that stuff.
0: Ain't nobody got time for that. We're going <laughs> to run out of time first. Uh, you know, I went back and looked, though, uh, just we referenced, or, or I referenced a moment ago that, um, Closure table conversation and nested set models and stuff like that. that was back in episodes twenty eight and twenty nine when we covered hierarchical data and when we were talking about closure tables, uh we said that the worst case for closure table in terms of storage would be uh, o of n squared. was a lot of storage yeah
2: so but super fast, right? That was the thing about it is it was incredibly fast so um yeah.
1: And uh, like Al said, um, you know, we usually talk about the stack because the heap is generally really big and the heap is much, much bigger. Um, and, yeah, we you know, mentioned, uh, you know, the stack trace is basically the, the or the call stack is uh, the list of everything that's on your stack. But then, you know, there's the infamous stack overflow, which is when you blow that stack, when you exceed the boundaries. That's if you have like an infinite loop or something or like some sort of recursion that doesn't finish before it exceeds that like in C sharp one megabyte boundary.
2: And thus, the name of the website that we're all familiar with.
1: Yep. And uh, what was uh, our buddy John was saying that Stack Overflow is like the number one cause of uh, vulnerabilities <laughs> uh, still in software today. Even though most languages, most modern languages, don't even um,
2: buffer overflow. Buffer but overflow. Yeah, that's that's usually what they try to exploit. But it's it's a similar type thing.
1: Sorry about the confusion.
0: Stack overflow, or buffer overflow, Boy, buffer whatever. overrun. Yeah so yeah. close enough
1: and uh, I did want to mention um, tail recursion too which is kind of like something you hear a lot about um, in uh, kind of functional um, languages and I was familiar because you know the purple wizard book the S, uh, structures in computer programming it's, it was like the how they used to teach computer science and MIT's like since the 60s it's a book about LISP it's horrible LISP is horrible <laughs> Uh, and, and like it, if you pretend like Lisp, then I'm sorry to burst bubble. It's, <laughs> the,
2: <laughs> oh my gosh. We, we will get one person that's going to be like, they were dogging on Lisp. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's. Yeah. What's, they
1: know. What's D funny. John, they know.
0: Is if you, if you were to Google tell recursion and like the first uh, thing for stack overflow comes up in that as a question is like, what is tell recursion? And they say, while starting to learn Lisp.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: blah, 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 uh, That's blah. It,
1: like the first thing. Yeah. The, the book, um, it's a, it's an interesting book. It hits on, uh, recursion in chapter one and it just gets like harder and like crazier from there. Uh, I, I, I need to get back to that book, but <laughs> well, I, I awesome. wanted to mention to All right.
2: Go ahead.
1: Well, one thing that's kind of interesting about it is like theoretically, if you look at your stack, right? And, uh, you add a, a frame to the stack and you can see all your, your pointers and you can see your value types on, on top of it. Well, what if you could tell that, the current entry on the stack, um, see, I don't know, I can explain this very well, so it may be worth trying. But essentially, if I can see that nothing that I'm adding to the next stack is used by my current function, so I can see that, um, that my, the, the previous entry previous top entry on the stack has no bearing on the, the kind of the output and all i care about is the new values on the function so i'm not using anything in that old function then i don't need to just put something new on the stack i can replace that top entry hmm. so like an example would be if you you're in a language that doesn't support tail recursion you're doing something like the fibonacci sequence then you would do another function call you're doing it recursively the terrible way you do another function call you slop that uh, those variables up there on the stack and every time you iterate, your you're adding a new scope a new frame to that stack over and over and over again so if you're going to the hundredth number then you've got a hundred frames added to that stack but if you've got something with tail recursion and you write your function in such a way that it doesn't um, do anything after it returns which is where i'm butchering it but the, the idea is that the previous call doesn't rely on anything from your current call so, so it doesn't
2: w- have to keep adding to the stack.
1: Yeah, it can just replace. So instead of adding 100 frames to the stack, it just says, oh, I don't care about the current one. Let me just blast it off, either pop it off or just replace the values in it. And so it keeps that call stack at w- essentially one, which is amazing compared to N. So in memory complexity, it's like, it's amazing. It's, you know, of, of order constant time with tail recursion for certain algorithms. And that's something that either your language supports or your language doesn't. And so it's kind of funny to think that your um, space complexity for an algorithm like might change based on the language you're implementing it in, but that's the case. Yeah, kind of makes sense though.
0: The Stack Overflow answer that I was referring to says that uh, the original answer was written in Python, but they later change, upgrade, updated the examples to JavaScript because um, modern JavaScript interpreters support tail call optimization and Python interpreters don't. Yeah. So to I didn't know point, that about JavaScript. Um, but yeah, I had this funny thought though, while you were, when you were talking about the the list book though, I was like, well, you know, what well, would be super awesome if they would like made this Easter egg, you know, where like, see if you even caught onto it, where you read the first chapter and then in order to, to you start the second chapter, but then the second chapter requires that you reread the first chapter, then you get to the third chapter and it re it requires that you reread the first two chapters, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah, well, just on them is like nobody makes it, it to the third chapter of a tech book.
0: What? <laughs> no one. I'm kidding. <laughs>
1: no, I, like a good portion of my tech books, like I've only read like say one third of the, my favorite books, like the Clean Codes and Clean Architecture stuff like that. Those definitely are cover to cover guys. But even design uh, design patterns, like it's, w- it's challenging to make it to the end. I'll say.
0: Yeah, I'm. Um, I'm reading one of those challenging books right now. Which one? Uh I'm I'm afraid I I don't I hate to throw it under the bus since I just said that. <laughs> but no, please. I mean, this this is we're all friends here. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's a it's a deep learning book and oh, okay. and uh I mean, I I like the topic, but the book that from things that I from reviews that I've read of other people, other people I thought maybe I was having an anomaly of like, you know, why things I didn't like about it and then I started reading some of the reviews. I'm like, oh, everybody's having the same 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 problems that I'm having with it. But there were several that were like, Hey, once you get past the first few chapters, like it does get better. So I'm like, okay, I'm just gonna power through and keep on. But it's been it, beautiful. I think this is so common
1: with the gang of four. That's why you see so many factor factories and not so many flyweights. <laughs> <laughs> it comes in a later chapter.
2: Right. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's probably true. As sad as it is, I guarantee you it's true. Yeah.
1: Uh, so how does Big O work for space complexity? It's basically the same. Uh, Big O doesn't care if you add three variables to the stack for every input because that's a constant. So you can drop it. Uh, it's much more concerned with the fact that you're adding things to the stack uh, for every iteration, for example. So that would be, uh, you know, if you do it for every input, that's going to be uh, order and operation.
0: Yep. So, so to clarify though, it does like when you said, if you're adding three variables to the stack for every input that it would care about. Well, that just it's, be an O
2: of N operation, right? No, it no, would
0: no. Be an o. If you, if you have a lit, if you pass in an array of a hundred items and for every one of those hundred items, you add three variables to the stack for every one of those inputs, then you do care about those three variables in that case. It's, it's the case where you don't care where it becomes o of 1 is if you add you take in some array period you add three variables and then it doesn't matter what the size of that array is those same three variables get added period that's those are the variables you don't care about
1: yeah we're kind of saying the same thing what i mean is like that example where you allocate three variables per per iteration per item in that list in that case you're you're doing three allocations times n so yes. 3n but we don't care that it's three, so it's just order right. n. It, it's but you're right; it's not n. order one.
2: Yeah, it's it's weird. But when you go back to the big O stuff, basically any kind, there's the constants, right? Or these like that one; it's a factor of three on every n. But you throw that away. They don't care about it at all. So unless you were adding n number of items for every iteration of n, which would be n squared then you just throw away that other factor. It it does not come into play. And I know that's crazy, but that's what we were talking about earlier too, right? Like it doesn't matter that you do the same 20 operations on every iteration. It doesn't care. You throw them away.
1: Yep. So I said that I definitely not an expert at it. So um, I I would love to hear your uh, ideas or comments uh, down in the comment section for the show notes. This will be, uh, what, slash episode 89? Yes.
2: Yep. Episode 89. We're getting close to 100. We do anything special on 100?
1: Oh. We'd love to hear your ideas for what special <laughs> we could do <laughs> for uh, episode 100.
2: That could be scary. We, we do have a whiskey channel over in uh, Slack.
0: That's so. right. <laughs> It'll be 2019 Maybe. before we get there.
1: It, it
2: will be 2019, but th- it's not too early to plan.
0: Yeah,
1: right. <laughs> You gotta do a drinking game. Sorry. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> uh, I let the dog. I didn't close the dogs out of the room tonight. I'm sorry. Uh,
2: Who let the dogs in?
1: Oh. <laughs> uh, oh my gosh! All right. Well, I was going to go on, but now I've got squeaking ducks. So, yeah, so maybe someone you. else should. Uh, all right. Well, I'll do it this time
2: then. If, if you haven't already for, first off, the reviews for this particular episode were just amazing. Thank you for, for writing them. If you haven't had a chance yet and you'd like to give back to us, you know, we mention it. We super appreciate it. We read them, put a smile on our face, go up to codingblocks.net slash review and there's links there to take you to the iTunes if that's your thing or Stitcher. And if there's another place that you'd rather do it, you know, please do. And also, as Mike said in the past as well, you know, do share, share with a friend, right? Like if there's somebody that you want to improve their coding, <laughs> then, then share it and, you know, share it with other people who are interested and passionate about improving their, their skill set. So thank you.
0: All right. So it's my favorite portion of the show. Survey says. All right, so last episode we asked, hey, how's your math? And your choices are, there's an app for that, or was great in primary school, or I can tip 20% comfortably, or I can still find the area under a curve, or I can still take the natural log of E with the best of them. All right, let's see. Alan, you go first.
2: Man, you know what's funny about this one is I want to say that I can tip 20% comfortably, but that is strictly a U.S. type thing. There are places in the world where they just don't tip. So so I'm going to toss that one out, and I'm going to say there's an app for that, and I'll go with 37%. All right. All right, that's pretty good. Um,
0: he's <laughs> at thirty-seven.
2: You go at thirty-eight. Oh, he, he's trying to block out his yep. dog.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a royal rumble behind me uh, right now. Just um, let it roll, man. All right, uh, I am going to go with thirty percent, thirty-eight percent
0: for whatever Alan said. <laughs> really, you don't even know what uh, I said. You can't. There is an that. app for that. <laughs> all right, so you are both going with. There is an app for that. Alan at thirty-seven percent, I think I heard, and Joe at thirty-eight percent. Yep. Okay. And the winner is neither of you. Really? Uh-huh. Really, guys? Like you don't think our audience can tip? <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Wow. That's true. Crap. Wow, guys. Wow. Wait. Uh-huh. Wow. That that's all I got for you guys is wow. How how high you know? was it? It was uh it was like fifty five percent of the vote. Dang, son. Uh, wow. That's awesome.
1: There. Uh, which which one? Uh, which one I
2: one? can tip 20%. Yeah. All right. 20%, okay.
1: All right. Good. How, much, uh, how many people could L and a V? Oh,
0: nobody can do that. Nobody. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm kidding. It was like 15%. I, yeah. I think they lied, but they, they – Yeah, it,
2: that's <laughs> that's insane. What about the uh, – the Come on. Who tastes a natural vlog
0: of anything without thinking about it for a minute?
2: I I don't even remember how to do it. I'd have to go look it back up again.
0: Natural log? Wasn't that like a fraction?
2: Oh oh so now you're gonna you can't answer the question with a question. That's not how that works.
1: <laughs> oh I mean no. Yeah, I don't know, man. I got a I got a I, cold, I'm sick, and I can't even tie my shoes right now, now, so I'm kinda wait, in- wait, wait. All
0: right.
2: Natural log of E, wasn't that wasn't that an exponent to one over the exponent or like it. See, that's the thing. This is where it drives me crazy. It's
1: been so long.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh it, man. No. What,
1: it, you guys want to know the answer? It's a fraction. It's one.
0: What? <laughs> no, it's instead of like a base two or base 10 or whatever. The base is like 2.718281828459. Blah, blah. that off the top of your head, did you? I did. See, I I, I knew it so well. No, of course I had to look that up. That's what I'm saying. Like, nobody nobody can take the natural log of something without a calculator. Come on. Dude, you want to know what's awesome here is there's there's
2: a webpage that showed up when I searched for it. Demystifying the natural (coughs) logarithm. And I swear to you, it's like a novel. Like, is that really demystifying something? If you've got to read 20 pages,
1: like... Oh no. Yeah, I need like twenty tweets, guys. Yeah, exactly.
0: Twenty tweets, short. still too many. That's nineteen too many.
1: You know, I've thought about like um trying to kinda like buy like a college textbook and like trying to kinda relearn my maths, but like ultimately I feel like I'm not gonna use it, so it's just gonna kinda <laughs> be, gonna be pointless. But I would love to not you know, to, to kinda re relearn some of that stuff. Like, I felt like I was pretty good with it for a while there. Like I felt like I was like the calculus kid in college.
2: Yeah, same here.
0: Yeah, I I had a conversation with a friend of mine, with a friend of ours actually recent here recently, where it was like, yeah, you know, I used to think that I liked math, and then I started reading, you know, some of these uh these equations, like the uh, getting into like Jake Jake, I can't even say it, Jacobian matrix and and partial derivatives, and I'm like, wait, what? I don't remember what. (laughs) What is this again?
2: I don't know. Yeah. You know what though don't you somewhat feel like the the order of which you get your education is almost backwards because like after being a software programmer you care a lot more about the things that you've already forgotten from school, right? But if you'd been programming and you were in school, you'd be like, oh, that's amazing. I understand that. I know exactly how I could put that to use or whatever. And it feels like it's almost backwards, right? Like there should be more of a – uh I don't know, like an apprenticeship type thing, right? Like where, where you work doing something and you're learning about that stuff as you go. I, I feel like it would be a much better way to do things.
0: Well, I've had a similar thought where I've kind of thought that it should be more the norm where you go back to school as an adult. Because like, you know, you've been, the, the further away you've been from the school, even if you, like us, are still trying to like study topics and whatnot, right? It's still easy to to lose sight of some of these things that are like fundamentals, you know, quote fundamentals depending on, you know, what you're doing, right? And it might not be um you know, if all you're doing is moving pixels around, you know, moving the div 3 pixels to the left. <laughs> but, yeah, i will be
1: like the only 4-year-old in stats class. Stats one. Oh man. <laughs> well, that would be nice. I would, I would love to be better with that. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, this survey we ask, what's your preferred password manager? And what's your password? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> one, two. <laughs> it's the same combination as my luggage. All right. Sorry. So your choices are one password, last pass, key pass plus dropbox, Roboform or keychain. Or I use, I just use the same three passwords everywhere or whatever is built into the browser.
2: Uh, hey, and we will not be tracking uh, logins for this. <laughs> <laughs> so if you are using the same three passwords, we won't know.
1: <laughs> yeah. Then you can just type away. Don't worry about
0: it. Oh, man. See, if I had to guess for you, if I had to answer for you guys, Joe's probably the last same three everywhere. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, that would mean typing it every time.
2: I have that. no online footprint, guys. I don't use password uh, managers. There you go.
1: Facebook's a uh, puku. The
0: all right. Well, let's get back into Big O and talk about why it matters. All right. So, um,
1: you know, one thing that I kind of well, we mentioned it several times is that, like, this isn't great for this or that or when we're dealing with databases or distributed systems. So, like, we well, you to have, like, multiple processors and stuff. Like, all those things, like, suddenly changes. It's like, maybe you're willing to to suffer some extra load, if you can split that up, and you know, like a map reduced type way or um, something that can be parallelized. So I was just wondering if we had um, like a newer, more modern system for Big O. Um, I don't know if you guys ran in, into anything that's kind of attempted to kind of bridge that gap in like computer science.
0: You mean as a way to measure, you know, whether or not it's like O of n versus O of n squared, like something like that. I mean, like, a whole other
1: system. Like, it's like, hey, yo, Big O, Big o was uh, invented, like, would you remember what year it was? It's like...
0: 1889 or something like that.
1: Yeah. And so, like, you would think, like, by now, like, there's all these PhD students who, like, every year they have to turn out papers on some topic, right? And everyone's always, like, trying to figure out what the topic and specialization is would be. You think someone by now might say, like, you know what? Well, maybe we could come up with a better way to compare algorithms than Big O.
2: That's interesting.
0: Big Theta.
1: Oh. Yeah. See, Well, no, I think this Big is o. why,
0: though, that um, – I mean, Big O, yes, it, the groundwork started uh, back in, like, the late – or that'd be the ni- late 19th century. Uh, but the – this is why we were – you know, I was kind of jokingly brought it up the last episode where, like, the credit went to um, – you know, there was the and others, right? Because it's it's been an evolving concept, right, that mathematicians still add to, right? So, I don't know that it's like, yeah. it's not like it's been static for the, like the last 150 years. or well, not I found 150. a tilde notation.
1: Yeah, I was just looking at that. I've never heard of that before, but it does look like it, it attempts to uh, kind of some of the same things, but it seems like that's kind of more of a replacement for the actual notation, kind of like replacing right. the big O and not so much the algorithmic analysis kind of side of things.
2: But you know what? Going back to what your your whole thing was like dealing with distributed systems or parallel processing, if you think about it in terms of just what big O was even meant to do. It's not like it changed because of the speed of computing. Like what you're suggesting almost is like when you throw in parallel processing and distributed systems so that you have multiple systems working on it, you haven't changed the time complexity of it. It's just the speed at which all the stuff gets put brought back together or whatever. So, I mean... I don't know. It seems like it's held up pretty well, even thinking about that, right? Like you're still going to have n number of operations that happen on all your nodes and then they're going to come back together and then your constant time would be putting those things back together and that's going to get thrown away anyway. So it seems like it still works.
1: It's kind of funny to think like, well, this operation is, uh, takes, it takes much less operations. And so it's better, but this other one that we're getting away from, uh, runs in 10% of the time, (laughs) I mean, it uses like 10 of our CPUs to do it. um, And it like practically kills a computer, but sometimes, you know, that's okay. Well, I mean, now we got things like quantum
2: computing that are coming up, right? Like with the, what is it? The R language or whatever for .NET and that kind of, or Q, Q, that's what it was. Not R, yeah, R statistical. Um, But yeah, so, I mean, I wonder if that's going to change things. Like at that point, the quantum computing is just way faster but it still takes a number of operations to do it. Right. So I don't know. I, if, if this thing's been around for over a hundred years, it's still just talking about, you know, what are the orders of magnitude of processes that this has to do to finish its task?
0: Well, also keep in mind too, that when this, uh, I went back and found it, the date was 1894. So this predates anything about computers. So, it's a, its origin has nothing to do with computers. We apply it to that field, but it's also used in other fields too. That's a good point. Yeah. Yep.
1: Yeah. So I I don't know what to do, but it, it does seem like there's um like I wish I could like invent like a a school of academia or a, some sort of um I don't know field of study where people are out there doing studies all the time about like how effective are unit tests really and. Uh, you know, how do you compare algorithms in a cloudy distributed world?
0: Oh, you had a good Like, would it be
1: nice to be able to, like, go to the boss and say, like, hey, unit tests uh, in the, these seven different trials, uh, case studies involving companies just like ours, uh, show improved performance to fix bugs of uh,
0: 17%. You had a good thought that was similar to that um, last week, maybe? related mm-hmm. to picking frameworks. Remember that? Oh yeah. Like, you know, if if there was some someone in ac- the academia world did a research on like, you know, how beneficial is it to switch from a view to a react or a react to an angular or from a vanilla js yeah. to an angular or, you know, does it make the project actually better? Like, can you quantify that? Does it Yeah, how how
1: would you? How would you yeah, quantify, you quantify that? that? It's like so I want Big O for that. Yeah, <laughs> but but, what's but, the Big O of React compared to Angular?
2: But how would you do it, though? Seriously. Like, you take the three of us, and React might click for me, Angular might click for Outlaw, and Vue might click for Joe, and... And it's just because how we think, right? So, like, going between the three different frameworks, probably it's not even a fair assessment, right? Like, how would you say that, you know, this one's better than the other one? Because you could probably make the argument that, hey, for this guy, it just made more sense to for whatever his previous experience was. So, I don't even know how you quantify stuff like that.
0: Well, maybe take in big O notation – how many steps does it take to create something basic? And then that would be a signal as to how likely you're to create a bug. Like the more, the more code required would, you know, is the more opportunity to make a mistake. Right. So maybe that could be one input. And then like for common, uh, you know, additions or modifications that you might want to make, like adding, adding a function, a feature, or modifying a feature, you know, like things like that. Like how how many operations does it take to make either of those things happen? Again, because, you know, you might uh, the, the more it would, the more you would, steps you would take, the like, more likely you'd introduce a problem. Maybe. I don't funny.
1: Know. Yeah, like number of lines written and number of files touched.
0: Yeah, like, and, and, This in a and file then, factor of 4. And then like good practices too, like Uh, Angular is, um, you know, out of the box, you get TypeScript support, right? With the latest Angular. So that's going to kind of, um, put your guardrails on. If I could borrow a term from episode one, uh, related (laughs) to, um, you know, making sure that the types are what you think they are in a JavaScript world, right? I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud.
1: Yeah, for sure. That'd be cool to see something like, even if it's like, I'd love to see like a a white paper or something if it exists where somebody does some sort of like analysis like that and comes up with some numbers. And even if they say like, "Hey, this is not a great way to make a decision," but here's one way to you know perform a mathematical com- comparison between two different frameworks. Yeah, I like it. I mean, it's all about quantifying it. it yeah. So well, we need to set up a Patreon here. <laughs> and if you guys will donate, we will try to find some PhD students willing to do the kind of studies that we want to see. <laughs> we'll like buy their lunch.
2: <laughs> oh, man. So, so we did ask the question, though, like, why does it matter, right? Why does big O matter? And somebody had something about cryptocurrency here.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think that we've seen that matters a lot when um, especially as um, Bitcoin got bigger and bigger, they ended up having to fork and make some fundamental changes to their algorithms because it just didn't scale very well and, and not very big. And even the kind of problems that they're they're solving kind of for like proof of work and some cryptocurrencies and whatnot, like they know roughly how long it's going to take for computers to solve the problem because they know how much work needs to be done in terms of times and space. And that's how they use it to kind of... um gate certain operations which is i, I think it's interesting so if you're working cryptocurrency then you're probably very aware of different performance uh, aspects and i think um probably cryptography too like if you're looking at either writing a new cryptographic algorithm or trying to crack something then you're probably very aware of the efficiency of how you're doing that because you know you're dealing with like astronomical numbers data sets
0: although m- maybe you want it to be slower or yeah take more time in that in that's that right. realm yeah it's yeah. kind of
1: funny i guess that's the deal with um you know like kind of the old well, like i don't want to say old school like normal uh, f- uh like factorial or um factoring based uh cryptography where you basically say oh uh, doing this operation to check if your private key you know um matches what i expect or whatever to see if this is the, the private key for my um or you know, whatever. If the keys match an asymmetric, then that's gonna be fast to check if it's correct, but it's gonna be brutally slow to figure it out if you don't know it already. Right. And then so, you need to prove that. Like you can't just say, like, well, I tried it three times and it worked out pretty well.
0: <laughs> right. So That's what we call what the good enough thi- security. S-
1: yeah. Say
0: again. That's what we call good enough security. <laughs> I tried it three yep. times. It's good enough.
2: So what are the other reasons you might need it? We've talked about interviewing. That's I mean, it's honest. probably going to come up.
0: That, that's <laughs> that's way up there on the list.
2: Yeah. I mean, in all honesty, the academic side of this is going to matter for interviewing with big companies. But and I don't know that we have it here. Is I mean, I guess it kind of fits in one of the other bullet points, so it's just just knowing Internally, like looking at it and understanding what you're looking at in, t- in in terms of the orders of magnitude, right? Like, oh man, I'm in an O of N sub squared type thing, right? This is this is really nasty. So it's just being able to kind of look at the pattern and understand that. Oh yeah, I mean, mathematically that means this thing's going to go off the rails at some point. So it, I think it's it's worth knowing, just also for your day to day stuff as well.
1: I think it's pretty cool to think too um, to like, if you know a little bit about O, e, then you know what it means to mathematically compare two things and come up with an objective basis for a comparison. So like I was saying with the two frameworks, like it may not work out that great in practice, but it's uh, one way to look at a problem and say like, okay, let's see if we can kind of subdivide it, drop the things that don't matter so much as we scale and, you know, compare the actual like the growth of something the growth curve of, of uh, a process or um you know of a something to see which one's better kind of objectively so and, you know it's kind of a cool way to think about problems
2: all right who's got the next one i think that's probably you joe
1: all right yeah a little bit of game programming um i know like a star and whatnot comes up a lot and so um and like uh like game logic trees or um, just decision trees, stuff like that. Um, a lot of times you have to take shortcuts. You just can't go down every path. You have to prune your trees in order to limit the number of decisions that you're looking at. And so you've got a lot of times way more input than you could ever use. And so you need to be aware of the kind of problems that you're trying to solve and the amount of data that you've got coming in so that you can, you know, know when you need to take those shortcuts and profiling is going to help, but it's like one of those things like, um, You know, you could probably save a lot of time up front if you know ahead of time or recognize ahead of time that something you're doing is a, you know, a polynomial time. And you just know that as the inputs, the pixels, the polygons, counts increase, uh, this isn't going to fly. And so you don't have to go back and fix that later or wait for the profiler. You can address it up front because you know that it's not going to happen.
0: Now, someone put in here machine learning and AI, but I'm curious as to why, Were you, yeah. So was this for me part it was of the decision, decision trees? trees. Okay,
1: yeah. So I know that, like, sometimes like, our buddy John talks about like um, using uh, breadth first search over depth first search because a lot of times the answer that you are looking for is more likely to be found kind of closer to your the point that you are starting at. So if you've got like an infinitely long tree or a tree so long or so large that it might as well be infinite then you may want to cut that off like after a heuristic, like say, uh give it a thousand runs and then give me your best answer. And so rather than um you know kind of going down one potential tangent that whole time, you want to kind of stick closer to your root of the tree. Um and so, you know, the idea there is just kind of that I, I think that you have to make those kind of decisions more often probably in machine learning and AI because a lot of times you probably have too much data. So you have to look at like things like either heuristics or smarter algorithms in order to kind of cut down on the processing time or resources. Brings us to business programming. Uh, I think that Big O probably doesn't matter too much in business programming.
2: Yeah, I don't know about that one. Yeah. I, I mean, it looks like the notes that we have here is like usually your bottleneck is in the data tier or the UI. So, as long as you're using good data structures on, you know, whatever your middle tier is, you should be fine. But, I mean, there's definitely, I've definitely seen things. I mean, uh, heck, I I worked on an e-commerce platform one time where, you know, there were just, they were doing like n-squared or n-cubed type operations that, I mean, yeah, you could fix it with some data structures, but you know, basically they, they had implemented patterns that looked like it was going to be a modular, easy way to do things, right? Like a consistent, easy to follow type thing. And and it was fine when there were 100 products in the store or 1,000, but as soon as you got to 10 or 20 or 30,000, then all of a sudden you started really seeing problems, right? So I think it, at least in terms of my my perspective on this one is typically you don't notice it until you started growing, and then and then once you hit like there, there's going to be a certain line that you go over, and all of a sudden you're going to spend a lot of time and effort trying to fix these these big O type problems
1: that you run into. So basically, it's basically, yeah, that's really a good stuff. point, especially with those um those more steep curves. Is that like you know zero customers is fine, a hundred customers is fine, a thousand customers is okay. 1,200 customers is terrible, right? Right. And so it could just kind of go off a cliff really quickly, and it's not going to scale, literally, if you've got something that's got a sharper growth curve.
0: All right. You know, what it, were you saying, Mike? At the start of that, well, basically, you were describing like the scale, which is what Joe was saying. But the, at the start of that uh, description, though, um, I can't remember exactly what the comment was that you made, but it made me think of something that we talked about before where when you had to look at like optimizations, Cause I was kind of thinking like, well, okay, your business, your business programming or your business tier, your business logic, that's where it's like more likely that you might write like a nested loop going over the same collection, right? Like that's where you're, that's where it's easy to get into like an O of N squared kind of operation. Right. Um, excluding like cross joins in, in your data tier. But, um, you know, so, so it, it might be, you might have that problem in there. And depending on what the scale is, you might not ever notice it. And, you know, again, going back to everything's fast for small end, um, you know, you might not never notice it until the scale r- gets to where, um, you know, like you were describing, but I'm pretty sure we talked about in the past though. And maybe it was in like the, how to be a programmer series or something like that, where it was talking about like, you know, when it comes to debugging your application or increasing the performance of your application, like often times, uh, you know, anything where where the latency is at, that's where your problems are going to be. So uh, reaching out across a network or reaching out to disk, like, you know, those types of operations. And I'm pretty sure, like, Joe, I think, had pulled up, uh, like, here, here's how you know many seconds it takes. Does that sound familiar to you guys? You remember that conversation? When we were talking uh-huh. about
2: the hardware, yeah. yeah, caches and how fast those were first level cash second level cash yeah
0: yeah so so it's easy to like in that business tier you could easily get into bad um, situations and maybe not even recognize it and when you do go to do your performance optimizations though you know yeah you might technically have an o of n squared in there and but because it's only ever working on a small n you know it's not necessarily the thing that you would go after first in order to uh, solve your performance problems. Right.
2: Yep. Right. You never want to micro optimize. We've talked about this. I don't remember if we talked about it in the 12 factor app or in, in clean architecture. It was one of the two, but it, it was something about there needs to be at least two X returns on, on performance. If you're going to go after something, right. And, and here's the thing again, it's not necessarily that it's bad, but, but I guess going back to the whole question of, do you have to consider this in business level programming? And I think yes, because you'll revisit it at some point, right? Like we've made the comment before that it's not like Twitter or LinkedIn were built the way that they exist today, right? They were built, they hit some level of scale and then they said, Oh crap, we need to go back and we need to figure out how to make this faster because we didn't expect there to be a hundred million messages per minute. Right. So I I guess just the short answer to it is yes, it matters for business programming. It's just at what point should you be spending time and resources on it?
0: I went back and found it. It was episode 45 where we were talking about it and it was related to the caching conversations. And there was, um, a GitHub, uh, link that we shared that was latency numbers. Every programmer should know. Right. And we covered like the latency to L one cache being half a nanosecond versus, um, a round trip within the same data center would be 500,000 nanoseconds. Right. That's crazy. Um, you know, to send a packet across the network, uh, across the internet from California to Netherlands back to California was going to be a uh, hundred and fifty million nanoseconds, right? Like it was things like that. So like, that's where, when we talk about, that's where I was, where I was going with that is that when you talk about performance and big O, maybe it's not necessarily what you have to go after right. to get the biggest bang for buck out of, you know, trying to, Make something more performant.
1: Yeah, I think the standard advice is basically use a profiler and try to figure out where your your, your biggest bottlenecks are and your most common processes. Um, I like I, that's. I always hear that phrase, but like I don't really know. There's not like you can't go to the profiler store and get something. Like I know kind of a combination of tools. Like Visual Studio's got something. And I know. Um, I've used like Dot peak a little bit to look at memory and stuff, but um, it's not like a super easy product process where you just kind of hit a button and get like the magical answers to your all your problems right so
2: when should you look into your algorithms
1: yeah i kind of i just kind of spitballed this i thought like when you know things are running slow but like if we're talking about bad algorithmic growth curves then if things are running slow then it's kind of already too late or is potentially about to drop off a cliff really, really quickly um but i you know Well, I'm not going to look at it too early, though. I'm not going to spend a bunch of time when things are running great looking for things that might be bad when I get a billion users. And Typically, I'm more worried about other kinds of scale. So I think if you kind of um, have been doing this kind of thing for a little while, you've been programming for a while, you kind of get in a little bit of an intuitive sense when you're doing stuff to think like, okay, this is a problem area to watch out for. And so that's good. You step into a new job, though, you know. You're probably going to have problems. Uh, maybe there's someone else you can kind of lean on there that's going to be more familiar with those uh, Those hotspots are probably going to be. Um, I also looked into, um, you know, like hardware provision, provisioning or predicting costs for like, um, you know, like the, cl- the cl- cloud calculators and whatnot. They'll have some kind of tooling around that, but that's more like a cloud kind of hosting environment level, not so much at your code.
0: Well, unless your code was just awful and required, like, a massive CPU on a cloud environment, then you might care. Well,
1: I wonder, like, how many programmers, like, know, like, oh, my app has an average CPU load of 2% and an average memory footprint of X. Like, I wonder how often, like, especially web developers, like, how often do you look at that stuff?
2: I, I would venture to say not enough. And, and I would also venture to say that when things do get moved to the cloud and all of a sudden costs skyrocket, people do start looking at it. Right. Cause it's yeah. like, wait a second. Why? So, um, it, you did mention the uh, profiling. There's also load testing, right? Yeah.
1: So that's a good way to kind of flushing out some problems. Cause like, uh, a lot of times like low testing will test comes like some of your most common processes, like checking out or signing up a registration form or something like that. And so, um, those will kind of like highlight the places to start looking. And what do you do about it? Um, safe refactoring <laughs> should do an episode on that one day. Uh, basically, just refactoring, but safe refactoring is the the act of like uh, refactoring in such a way that it doesn't actually change anything. So that's actually not a good answer to this. You should refactor in <laughs> such a way as you can like slice out those igra- uh, those algorithms, kind of like, isolate them, and then work on them in isolation with nice, pretty tests. I do like the the next bullet that we
2: have here, which is you examine your data structures. There is probably not much that will give you more bang for your buck than just understanding the the workings of various different data structures. So,
1: yeah, like I should be using a tree here instead of a, a you know a bunch of different lists, or I should be using a hash table, something like that. That's the most bang for the buck I've seen.
0: Any and you were about-
1: yeah.
2: What was that? What were your thoughts on it, Mike?
0: No, I was I was gonna go on to we already mentioned the profiling the app, um, but someone has here like looking for duplicated work.
1: Yeah, that's something I've seen when like messing around with profilers a little um uh often sometimes you'll see like the um the count of times that certain functions are called. And so you'll see like a function like get customers is called 82,000 times. And you'll kind of drill in a little bit like, why is this one call called so much more? And then you'll go see, and is in a loop or something that doesn't need to be like, sometimes you'll see like redundant work where like something could be pulled out to like outside of a loop rather than in it. And that's not directly related to big O, but, um you know, because that's one of those things that can be kind of a constant. But uh it could really uh, save you a lot of work. And so that's one of the first things I look at when profiling is like, let me see the most common calls or the most uh, CPU intensive calls.
2: And that's funny what you just said about that. It's one of those things that gets thrown out in big O. It could be a super expensive call that just happens to be in a loop, but it's not taken into account for when you're talking about big O notation. So if you're drawing it on a whiteboard, you'd never care about it. But when you look at the actual implementation of it, it can matter a lot.
1: Yep. You know, that reminds me, one thing I see a lot of times is um like back in the jQuery days, like it would be common to like, you know, like loop over something and you would see like the dollar sign, you know, pound, get the ID of something in like, append HTML or something, it always bothered me to see that, um, that dollar sign, like, basically getting that element from the DOM in that loop over and over again. And it's just easier to do it that way, but it always bothered me to see that.
2: Because it's an expensive lookup, if it's not being okay, cached so. by the... By the library underneath the covers, right? So
1: Yeah, but like now that I know a little bit more about development, like what really should've horrified me is just adding to the DOM over and over again, right? <laughs> it's like the lookup sucks, sure, but adding to the DOM, having it repaint between like every iteration in that loop, like that sucks even more.
2: Yeah, when you understand the the painting of the Dom and the and the event loop, it, it's it's eye-opening. And yeah. that also, that's one of the tools in Chrome. If you ever, <laughs> this should probably have been a tip, but if you ever, like, were to open up your profiler in Chrome or Firefox or any of those things and look at what happens when you do something on a page and sometimes you'll see this, like, it'll look like a waterfall, right? And and you'll see all the things that are running when it's painting one thing on the screen or something. And you're like, how did this ever even work, right? Yeah. So... Anyways, all right, so we got the fun stuff here.
1: Yeah, I thought it'd be fun to play a little game of uh, Over Under again, so um, once again, Alan and Ella have not seen the topics that I'm going to spring upon them right now.
0: Or or have we?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if you went to the second sheet in this spreadsheet, then you'll have seen My Secrets. Oops, oh, but, uh, man, are they right here? Don't don't yeah. click it. <laughs> okay,
2: don't hey, click I'm it. not going to. I'm that guy that doesn't like to know what gifts I have. Like, I, I want to open it and be surprised.
1: All right. Well, I uh, well, yeah, let's, let's get to it. So um, first up, uh, computer science, underrated, overrated or rated.
0: Or fine. You mean? Yeah, it was Over, know. under, fine. Right.
1: Under, under, over, fine. Yeah. I
0: think it's fine. Fine. Okay. I'm saying fine.
1: Uh I'm going to say fine too. <clears throat> just cuz a lot of people hate on it nowadays.
0: <laughs>
1: I think it matters. It, it matters.
0: It definitely yeah, has I its application. It I mean, you know, Yeah. That that's where like the more complicated like I wouldn't consider, you know, moving the the div 3 pixels to the left as computer science. But, no. you know, concentrated areas of of study like uh, machine learning or uh, AI, those kind of things, that's that's important work that needs to happen. Yeah. Right? if we want self-driving cars to actually work, right?
1: So I think it's fine. That's a really good point. Yeah, really good point. Uh, and yeah, I, I think like in I don't know, like early two thousands, like Java ruled the roost and like computer science ruled the roost, and then like Ruby came out and they were like, no, screw that, HTML, and so like like things kind of took a turn, and then JavaScript is now like the king, and like yeah, so computer science is in the back seat right now, but I still think it's really important uh, for certain applications. Yep. Uh, Design patterns. Under. Okay. Hmm. Outlaw, what do you think?
0: I'm going to say, I'm going to go with Alan on underrated. Because I don't think it gets talked about enough early on in your, like, education and career.
1: Oh, yeah. That's good. Crap. You just changed my answer, maybe. <laughs> so, uh, what you, you, maybe.
0: Were, you were, it was I good. was
1: going to say, I was going to say good, because I do think sometimes it could be, like, overdone, but also I think that there's lots of times that I've, like, looked at the system and been like, man, why didn't we just use, like, a common pattern that we have an ubiquitous term for? <laughs> you right. reinvented the observer or whatever. Right. Yep. Um, all right. I'm, I'm switching to Under. Underrated, I think that people should learn it sooner. Data structures.
0: You go this time, Mike. I'm going to say underrated.
2: Same.
1: Yeah. Same. So far, we're the same on everything.
0: Man, this sucks. This is the <laughs> worst game ever. Right? You got to throw in something <laughs> else. How do you build uh, about Pikachu? Controversial. Um, no, go ahead. Uh, node.
1: Over. over. Man. Oh,
2: boy. Here we go. Uh, it's not over. I'm going to say it's
1: fine. Fine. Uh, I'm going to say, I'm going to say, f- shoot. So I'm going to say fine. Fine.
0: Fine. It's nah.
1: amazingly impressive
2: what you can do with some Node.js. That, that's it. Like,
0: but all it is, it's just, yeah. It's just a JavaScript interpreter that's not within a browser, though, right? Like the only reason why we talk about it is just because there's like the one thing. I don't know. It's not. Dude, I don't.
2: It's a web server. It's a dude. Go look up an npm package for anything that you want to do, and it probably exists, no matter how weird. It and itself obscure. is not
0: a web server. It's just that code was written to to use it as the run. Uh, as the interpreter to make a web server. That's what it I'm itself saying, right? is just an interpreter, though. It's just right, a JavaScript right. Express.js interpreter.
2: Express.js was written on Node.js. Like, I'm just saying, like, the fact that you could basically, with, and I, man, what's...
0: You could write You could write a web server in any other language, though, but yet you're not as excited about that as you are about writing it with Node, though.
2: The, the This is why I'm saying it's overrated. The ecosystem around Node... Has made Node impressive.
0: Okay, so were you this excited about Pearl back in like the nineties because of CPAN? You're like, oh man, the ecosystem around Pearl is amazing. Man, I I mean,
1: well, they weren't using it for the Pearl. That's for dang sure. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, just saying, man. Like,
2: what else has have you seen spring up, and so much come out of so fast? java as as no js nah nah come on. not even java what dude java's no JS for a while yeah java was king but no js blew up when it came onto the scene like just straight up blew up okay. and it hasn't gone anywhere in, in like a decade or however long it's been around now
0: has it even been so, that long i mean java's been a thing since like the mid 90s like i
1: yeah but when's the last cool like idea you heard come out of java like a lot of stuff did come out of Java, like even like fluent syntax, like all sorts of cool stuff and like annotations, like a lot of like so much innovation was there in like the early 2000s. But then like, it, like all the innovators left and went to Ruby and then or like, a, six months later, they went to, uh, to node.
2: Yeah. I don't know, man. I, I think it's just fine for that reason. Like yeah. it's, it's an impressive ecosystem built around I'm
0: it. not saying that don't, don't take my saying it's no, overrated no, yeah, as saying that no. node itself isn't yeah, yeah, a good thing. Right. Right. Or that it it's. You but, just think
2: it's overhyped at this point.
0: Yes, it's overhyped. Just like yeah. I used to think that Java was overhyped too. I mean, even though I referenced Java as like you know bringing up so much, but because I remember this was the one that bugged me so much was <clears throat> back in the nineties. I don't know if you guys remember this, but uh, IBM used to run a commercial where. I forget it was but at one point during the commercial you would hear this guy say Java, well you gotta have Java. And I was like, Really? (laughs) Why why are you talking about any programming language on a commercial like Like, it matters? Like who cares? Like that that's it became a marketing thing, and that's where I was like, Okay, it was overhyped. Right? And node hasn't quite gotten gotten there, maybe, but
2: Uh, I don't know, yeah. Alright, what we got next? What we got? JavaScript. Oh. <laughs> uh, it's fine. Yeah. <sighs> Outlaws, you struggling.
0: Uh, yeah. Can I do my Picard? Like, oh God. Yeah. Um I guess I'm gonna say fine.
1: <laughs> so, Node overrated, but JavaScript fine.
0: I mean, it's so necessary though to do any kind of decent web applications these days. Hmm. I, what about
2: you, Joe? Where'd you land on this? I feel like,
0: he, yeah, yeah, stuff.
1: I'm going to go with fine because of ES6. If it wasn't for ES6 and uh, some of the, like the nicer stuff that they've added, then I would definitely say over. So consider yourself a war in JavaScript. You're on the edge.
0: Uh, well, now they're iterating on it fast, though.
1: Yeah, ES2017
2: is already a thing.
0: Yeah, so yeah, nice. I-, I like your explanation. I'll buy that, yeah.
1: Yeah. All right, so we're all we're all fine with that. Uh, ORMs. Ooh. Outlaw. Actually, Joe, you go first. I'm going to say nothing, I, I guess. I don't
0: know. <laughs>
2: uh,
1: I guess... I'm going to just have to say fine because I don't know. I'm going to say underrated. <laughs> All right.
2: Oh, that's interesting. I, I, I think I'll go fine, although I'd probably lean towards underrated on it as well.
0: My reason for the underrated, though, is because it's so easier to just write your query, pass it off to you know some kind of... Uh, you know, database system that can that can execute it like whatever library you're using, without having, you know, uh, a a true ORM there and just getting back like a data table and like so you end up with all these like one offs and your code is just very intimately aware of what's coming back from that exact query, you know, and it's you're too coupled to those queries. Yeah, so that's why I was going with that.
2: Yeah, I agree. I I like the explanation. I hmm, I'll
1: stay with fine. All right. What about code comments? Overrated. Yes. Overrated. I think they're fine. Because I do some nasty stuff. And I like to excuse myself. I like to get that moral license. But I did some nasty stuff, but there's a comment about it, so you can't hate on me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Here, here's my Here's my reason for the overrated is because it's too easy to rely on... Hey, I'll just write bad code and then I'll, I'll explain it with a comment and I've covered my butt. Right. Yeah. That's why. Whereas, yeah. But if you, whereas if you were able to take the time to make the code more expressive to where you didn't need it, right. Then that would be a much better approach. Now there are situations where, you know, a comment might be necessary. And I'm not, I'm not saying that there aren't times. I'm not saying that there's never a time to comment. I'm just saying that it's too easy to fall into the the bad habit of relying on them. I have a different
2: reason for it, but it's along the same things. Mine is people don't ever change the comments. So if you ever do refactor the code, the comment stays there and then people are misled. Yeah. And that's why I think they're they're overrated. Like I'd I'd rather the code be more expressive.
0: There was something similar that came up um in the Slack channel. Um I want to say that Mike brought it up where we were talking about like un, or we were talking about commented code being in your code base. Right. And he, he'd shared like a regex to find uh, five lines. Yeah. You know, some X number of lines of commented out code that that might be code that you want to delete. And you know, some of the conversation was about like, same as with the comments though, is that, Hey, you refactor something, you change something. And now there's this commented out code and you're not sure like, huh, what is that about? Do I just delete that? Why is that left there? Should it, Should I delete it? Or, you know, or was it left there for a reason? Like maybe they didn't finish it. And so I should also make my change. Like maybe I, I changed the name of a variable or whatever, you know, because if you were using a tool to do the refactoring, like if you, to rename a variable, for example, or a class, you know, it might not catch the comment you know, because it's a string, right? So it could mm-hmm. it could be left alone. And then when somebody goes to uncomment that code, you're like, okay, I'm ready to start working on this thing again. And now it doesn't work. That's a good point.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I guess I just use it to make up for my bad code at the time. But I, there's a lot of times, in, like, especially in the UI stuff, where I have to do something weird because something weird is happening. I can't afford the time to refactor the world. So, I, you know, I'll kind of... Put a comment here that says like, "Hey, you see the text defined here, but it gets changed dynamically in certain cases. Go check out the, you know, whatever this file because this value that looks like a plain simple thing is not what it appears." And I do the same thing in SQL sometimes where I'll like I'll kind of put like a not a not a typo like if there's something that just looks wrong, um, or like if two things are joined where it doesn't look like they should be, or I'm just doing something weird for some weirdo reason, uh, and I can't afford to. Or, you know, or does it doesn't make sense to change the schema. I'll put a comment in that says, like, yeah, I know what this looks like, but it's actually good because see this ticket.
2: Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I'm not going to hate on it,
1: but. <clears throat> yeah, you're right okay. there. I mean, everything think you said, it still stands. Yeah. All right, I got two more. Okay. Linux servers.
0: Mike. Huh. That's a toughie. Cause I want to say fine, but Windows has been getting so much better now. And now that you could run Linux on top of Windows, I almost want to say like, "Oh, then you get the best of both worlds. Yep. Yeah. I'll, I'll say fine. But I think I'm gonna say it with fine.
1: Yeah, I'm gonna go with fine too, but I feel the same way. I felt like Windows is catching up and that's what kinda why what I wanted to call that It's like that, like, that used to be a foregone conclusion be like, yeah, I mean, if you can deploy to Linux, yeah, you know, of course. But now it's kind of like, well, yeah, I mean, that's cool. It's kind of funny, like, now Microsoft's embraced and, like, now you can't actually deploy to Linux. And it's like, well, actually, like, I'm okay with Windows now. Right. All these years later, I don't care anymore. Yeah. it's basically Dang. what it is. Well, it used yeah. to be
0: a thing, too, that, like, um, everybody would say, like, well, why would you even want like a, a UI on your server? Right, like that was a common argument back in the day, but in modern modern versions of Windows Server, you know, you get asked that's one of the questions like, Hey, do you, do you need the UI? Yeah, do you do want to run headless? Do you? All you right, really yeah, we it? can do that. Yeah, what's the new uh
1: Pico or whatever?
2: I think it's Pico. Uh, they changed it now, it's just Windows Server Core, right? I think is what they call it or something. Oh, is like it? That.
1: Oh, yeah. that sounds yeah. pretty cool. But uh, yeah, I think with, with Docker and stuff like that, I kinda don't really care about the underlying OS anymore. Like especially with you know, like cloud and everything, like, I just don't really think too much about whether I'm running on Red Hat or CentOS or you know whatever. Like it's kind of commoditized uh, the operating system. Yep. So, what so we got last year, last one. Fine. Yeah, I wanted to say um, for programmers. So from a programming perspective, Windows on the desktop.
0: Wait, like using the Windows operating system. What do
1: yeah. you mean? There's people that prefer it. There's people that definitely don't prefer it. Oh, there's
2: people that it's either Mac or, yeah, I mean, there's people, that this is a flame war. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's fine. I like it. I, I mean, it depends. I guess it really depends on what you're coding in, right? But to Mike's point a minute ago, especially with the Windows subsystem for Linux now or the, yeah, yeah Linux yeah, subsystem right. for Windows. I don't remember what it's called. But that that kind of is a game changer. So, I'd almost lean towards underrated to a certain degree. Yeah.
0: So the question is, want? do I think that using Windows as the operating system for my computer is it overrated, underrated, or fine? Yep. Uh, I gotta stick with fine.
1: I think a couple of years ago, I would have said it's overrated because, you know, like on the Mac, I've got the Terminal, I've got the Bash, I've got Brew, like I've got all these really nice tools. So I've got Docker. Um, but now I, I feel like Docker is kind of even that score for me, too. And so Windows is kind of like it's it's convenient, but th- there's a lot of stuff I don't care about. And so, you know, it's like Cortana and uh, there's just a lot of stuff I don't really care about. And so in a way this kind of become commoditized to me, too, but I still don't want to be working. I don't want to be living on a, a Linux box. Like, I think it's cool. It's neat. But I don't want to have to be v- vimming into things all the time to change this or that. I like, I like the Windows. So I'm going to go with fine, too.
0: Yeah. I mean, my, my reason for picking the for, for saying that it was fine was just because the the variety of tools. I mean, you mentioned the um, Windows subsystem for Linux. But on t- not only that, though, like Git Bash, for example, You know, if you ever use that, I mean, I'm actually trying to break the habit out of using bash on windows because in one form or another, like back in like the sick wind days from long past, right? Like I I've had this habit of using bash on windows and I'm actually trying to like get myself out of that world. Right. Cause I kind of feel like it's a crutch almost to keep using it as, as weird as it sounds to say. So like, I feel like you can kind of have your cake and eat it too on the windows world. Cause there are so many you know, just a plethora of, of applications out there and software that you could use on it. Right. Where it's not like, um, you know, definitely in like a Mac and Linux world, you might, you might find yourself a little bit more constrained and Mm -hmm. and especially like maybe not in when you stay mainstream kind of software, you know, vertical, but when you start to get out into like the fringe edges of, Software, then you might find yourself more limited, right? So, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm gonna say fine.
1: Cool. All right. Cool. Well, I totaled up, <clears throat> and uh, today I was actually the most optimistic with two unders, and the rest fine. I didn't say anything was overrated. Nice. Yeah, you
2: are sick. You are sick. So yeah, it's that. the
1: cold medicine. That that that'll, that'll <laughs> whatever. <get> it. <laughs> it's the Nyquil. Uh, so outlaw you uh you had two overrated uh Alan you had one and uh, everything else is pretty close to the same. Outlaw uh, you did have more underrated, so you uh have more issue with how people think about things, these topics, and Alan. You and I are both pretty close on thinking that they're pretty close to rated as they should be.
0: Middle of the road. Wait, but yep. you had two underrateds, right? And you yep you said that meant that you were the most optimistic. But if I yeah. have four underrateds, doesn't that make me even more optimistic?
1: Oh yeah, I guess depending on you had uh, sorry three underrateds. Um, yeah, so I guess you could argue it that way. Um, but you did have two overrated, so I, I guess it depends on how you uh, add it up. I don't know how to compare these things mathematically. Right.
2: He's the curmudgeonly happy guy. <laughs> like, that's that's right. uh, however that works. <laughs> right. Get off
0: my lawn! But look at how green it is.
2: Right. Come back here and swim in the pool, but don't touch. Appreciate
0: lawn. it. <laughs> yep. all right Uh, well hey i i had a thought that i wanted to share with you guys though um we we talk about we we talked a lot about um the clean code series right we've talked a lot about like some of the practices that uncle bob has put out there and i kind of had this thought where it's like sometimes do you ever find yourself struggling with like the concepts of clean code in that You'll, you'll want to, you'll want your function, for example, let's just say you're focusing on a single function, like you want that thing to be small, right? But ultimately there's things inside of that that you might need to do to make it complete. But if you were to break that out into a separate function, then some other developer might come behind you and be tempted to use it. And it's not something that you want them to use, right? It's mm-hmm. it's something that you think like, this is already probably a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Does that, does that make any sense? Totally. Yeah. So I was curious to see, like, if you guys, um, like if you, sh- if you found yourselves at times, like struggling is going to sound like, you know, m- worse than it probably is, but you know, you struggle with that kind of, that kind of thing
1: i do all the time (laughs) it definitely a constant struggle especially with um those long methods like you know in a perfect world you like we talked about like the five the rule of five where it's like every function is small every file is small every namespace is small but in your real world code like sometimes you're in really big methods and it you don't even want to break necessarily your method apart because it's going to get lost in this like sea of sea of trash right so uh yeah i like i do like um like C sharp mouse su- supports um, anonymous methods, like inside the actual function. And I think that's one way of kind of doing what you're saying. Cause I have the same struggles. A lot of times like I will do stuff that I hate doing, like modifying arguments or like modifying the internal state of like an array or a list or something that I pass into a function. And I I'm doing that because I, I want the convenience of not having to duplicate code a bunch of times. I want to be able to reuse this common logic, but I'm absolutely modifying the argument, which is I always think of as being a big no, no, and making it a private function isn't enough because sometimes I've got some big class that I'm dealing with and I can't afford the time to rip it all apart. So I like the idea of doing little small anonymous functions. Cause it's kind of like a way of saying like, Hey, this is mine in my function. Leave me alone.
2: Yeah. I mean, I'm sort of in the same, but I don't think I view anonymous functions that way. I don't typically do it that way. It's kind of an interesting take on it, but I feel like it's still all kind of embedded in your other function. So You haven't broken it up that much, but at least it does keep it scoped to where people can't mess with it. But I do. I I have the same problems, right? Like I'll look at something and be like, oh man, like I I think the one thing from the clean code series that stuck with me the absolute most is I want people to be able to read what's happening in my method. Like it's a, like it's a story, right? Like they'll keep things at the same
1: abstraction level.
2: Not not as much that, even though it kind of tends to just happen that way. But like, if you can read it like a story, you know, like, okay, go get customer. All right. Update customer. Now get customer orders. Now do this with customer orders, right? Like if I can make it to where I name my methods and, and I put those methods inside the other method in a way that reads like a story, that's what I find myself trying to do the most. Where I typically end up struggling though with that, it's not. I don't typically think about, hey, what what's another person going to come do after this because I can't control them, right? Like some people are just going to screw up code no matter what, no matter what you do. Um, <clears throat> but the thing that I struggle with that always frustrates me goes to like the CQRS type things, the command query separation. It it always drives me crazy that if I'm going to do something that mutates the state of it, then I got to go get the state of it right afterwards. Right. And and, and that always drives me kind of crazy. So I'll I'll sort of struggle with things like that. Like, man, do I really want to split this into two or three calls? Even though I know that it's all going to be done right there. Um,
1: Yeah. Yeah. Especially in JavaScript, like a lot of times I'll get some like JSON from the server and I want to augment that JSON. I want to format it. I want to, you know, format the dates. I want this to be capitalized. I want to do some basic transformation on that stuff. And with Jason, yeah. it's so easy to just kind of like take that stuff and and augment it right there. And yeah. I know what I should do is basically clone the object first and then make my modifications there and return that as a new object so I'm not mutating but but like, come on.
0: Right. <laughs> Nobody has like, time for that.
1: Yeah. I mean it's like Jason, it's already designed for that sort of thing.
0: You you mentioned wanting your code to read like a story, but it made me think like, well, what happens if the story is the site of the crash? And it's just war yeah. everywhere. And you're like, well, technically, it's a story. No one said right. it was going to be a story you enjoy. It could be like a Stephen King story, and you know, yeah. you just turn to the wrong chapter. That's that's on uh, you. That's awesome. But uh, it kind of, I am, I do feel a little bit better though, because definitely with some of the comments that you made, Joe was kind of in the same thinking that that where I've done this, where, um, although I, I wouldn't. I wasn't thinking of necessarily anonymous functions, but I have, I don't know if I would call it a habit, but I have definitely found myself more, um, in recent, you know, like the, you know, year or two using functions. Like I'll create a, you know, as a variable within a method. Right. And then that way I can put an expressive name on whatever yeah. the logic is that I want to use. But like, as Alan pointed out, the scope of it is limited to my function. So no other developer can use that. And then when I find that there is a need to move that thing up to like, um, you know, to, to make it more exposed, then I can, which is kind of like where I think we talked about it. Maybe it was with the clean code series, probably like, you know, where creating. Defining your methods as private initially and then progressively making them more exposed as you find the need, right? And I find, like, this is, like, a more granular, you know, version of that, right? Where, like, now the scope is just within the method. and It's like you know, a
2: closure, basically, is what yeah. you're doing.
0: And so, I, you know, I've kind of – every time I've I've done it, though, I kind of catch myself and I'm like, oh. I mean, on the one hand, I love it because – No one else can use this thing, and I'm not necessarily introducing something bad to the rest of this class, for example. But on the other hand, I'm like, well, how bad of a pattern is this? Like, you know? Yeah. I mean, I
2: I don't have any, like, crazy passionate opinion about it, I mean, I get why you do it, right? And it's like you said, you lock it down. Nobody else can touch it. But then you are joking up that particular method, right, that you're in because you're still going to have to organize it in a way to where it reads pretty and all that kind of stuff because, I mean – in the best case scenario, you're going to have a bunch of anonymous method or even variable assigned methods up at the top of your method that you're running. And then it's going to be down at the bottom where you're calling all that stuff. So it's still not
0: pretty. Well, that, that's kind of like begs the question too, though, because there's, you know, a lot of, um, rule of thumb is to define your methods as close to where they're being used. Right. (laughs) So define your, define your variable as close to where it's being used. So, you know, you could make the case that actually your function is going to be defined right before you call it for the first time.
2: But that'll suck too, because then it doesn't read like a story. Now you've got a bunch of broken up code and blocks that you, that's going to be hard to follow. And this is why
0: I bring it up. Right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The struggle yeah. is real.
2: It is. So, yeah. I mean, it, it, dude, I, I would be ashamed to admit how much time I spend on trying to name things at times.
1: Yeah. That's good. Like, that. I hate how many times I go into my code and I wish I'd named something better because I'm like, damn, this is item and this is item and this is P. <laughs> I don't do single letters, but like, I tend to name like the a variable for something like, you know, I don't really care to because I only use it three lines. And I get confused. I'm like, wait, which one was this again? Hey, as long as you don't start your variable name with
2: i underscore or
0: yeah.
1: s underscore, I'll be fine with it. No, Just don't Hungarian. do that to me.
2: <laughs> it actually it makes bile rise in me. Oh, what yeah.
0: Hungarian notation? You're not a
2: fan. It, I'm not a fan. I'm an anti fan of Hungarian notation.
1: I did like uh, one thing you said out loud too about um like naming kind of like internal variable or variables uh, in your function like after what it is. So rather than doing something like Doing an operation on dot count, you maybe set a variable equal to, you know, that dot count or dot where dot count or whatever. If you do something link that kind of gives a descriptive name. So it might be like bad customer count or something like that. And because and, that's easier to read than seeing some big long link expression that ends with a count or a length and doing some sort of math on it or something. So it is nice to kind of see that intent there with a variable.
0: Yeah. yeah like a prime example. Um, actually, it came up, uh, I don't remember if it was today or yesterday, but you know, you might find yourself in a situation where you write an if statement and you're like, if this thing is true and that thing is true, if both of these conditions, right. And so, um, you know, I was like, you know, to make this more clear, I'm just going to create a variable that holds a function that it states exactly why I need that condition to be true. So it'd be like, you know, and then that way, when you read the if statement, it read better. But I was like, "Well, I don't need this anywhere else. There's no, there's no reason to pollute the rest of the class space for it. But yet, and if I did, like, why do I need anyone else using it? I don't feel like anyone else wants to use or should be using that. Maybe they should. I don't know. I mean, yeah, Uncle I Bob would probably tell me that. that I have <laughs> have the class doing too much, and that's why it's already a problem. And I uh, would go to argue uh, with that." Bar. Did you just yak
2: on the mic? <laughs>
1: uh, I'm yakking myself for talking over you. Sorry about that. Uh, but I get so excited thinking about the code. When I was thinking about the if statement. I'll do like something like if initialized or if object equals null and needs is not you know needs initialization or something like that. And I'll put a little comment above it like if we don't have the object but we need it. And like what I should be doing there instead is using a variable. And sometimes I catch myself doing that and do the right thing and be like, Oh, let me just create a variable that expresses my intent here. And then my, if is super simple and everyone knows what I'm doing, I don't need a comment, but I still find spaces where I just kind of instinctively do those comments.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right. So how about this one for you? This is going to be a C sharp specific, maybe unless you can figure out a way to bring it into another language. But uh, how do you feel about, The use of the dynamic keyword.
1: Uh, I mean, it, it kind of like defeats a lot of the compiling purpose. So it kind of bothers me a little bit. But at the same time, there's a lot of stuff I do that's like I kind of define my data output in my, like, say, SQL query. And my C sharp is just passed through. It doesn't make any decisions. It doesn't care. And so it's just a burden to keep that thing up to date. And so I like dynamic for those cases, even though I know Uncle Bob does not.
2: Yeah. I mean, I I have neither love nor hate for it. I mean, it's it's a tool, right?
0: Like if uh, it's a tool, you're saying like that uh, you're a derogatory term, like, oh, you're such a tool.
2: No, no, like it has its uses. Like if you're, if you're taking in inputs from systems, like, I mean, if you look at log formats for, I mean, I I work with Splunk on occasion and stuff like that, and it takes in unstructured log files. And if you're taking in something like that, the dynamic's a perfect example of where using something like that works out. You don't know the properties and things that are going to be on it. That makes sense, right? And even like what Joe said, you know, you have something that's going to be shaping your data and you don't want to have to have a one-off DTO for every single different shape of that data that you're going to have for your possible results. I get it. Um, so I, yeah, I, it's, it's a tool like anything else, right? Just like ref- reflection, you'll have people that hate it. There's, there's a reason for it, you know, <laughs> Uh, there are situations where it makes sense and yeah.
0: Right. So, okay. So it moves. So one of the complaints that I heard Joe say was that it, you're, you're moving the problem instead of it being a compile time check, it moves it to being a runtime check. Or is right. it even a check? Well, it, it what I mean is, time like, time it could error. throw an error, right? Like, so right. instead of finding your errors at, at compile time, that check happens at runtime, and it could error then, right? <laughs>
1: I have very bad dogs tonight. Sorry,
0: uh, that's awesome. I think it's hilarious, but um, but then the example that Joe gave, though, right? Where like <clears throat> you're just your middle, middle ah, easy for me to say, your middle tier was just simply passing the request through and then the response back through it. Right. Like, and that's why you didn't want to have to care about it. But now couldn't you argue that you're more tightly coupling the UI tier to that data tier? Because now, you know, the, the, in order for the UI tier to know what, um, you know, what data came back, it knows exactly what the data tier sent. And in order for the data tier to know how to execute you know, what query, what, what you're ultimately trying to query, right? It knows exactly what the front, the UI layer sent. There's no layer of abstraction between them.
1: It's true. Yeah, I mean, that's okay. Sometimes.
2: I mean, it's funny, like where I see that it could be extremely useful is in situations where you're doing like custom aggregations on data and stuff and you're not going to there's there's no standard way of saying, hey, count of this field or something like that, right? I could totally see where like having a dynamic variable there makes a lot of sense. Where I kind of don't like it though is there's no contract, right? Like if if you have a request to an endpoint to an API or something, there's nothing there that locks you down to, hey, what's the contract that you're looking for? Mm -hmm. There's no way for you as a developer to go find it. You just have to know what it is. And, and that's the, I think that's probably the one thing that does bug me is if it's something that's a pass through, fine, I get it. If it's something that you've actually got to use, like you have your UI making a request to something, what, what am I supposed to pass to you? How am I supposed to figure that out? You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Sometimes you don't care. Like, um, I remember I were to think for, um, for like sending some like syslog events or whatever. And it would take in like a, a query and it would serialize it to syslog format and spit it out. And like whatever columns you had in that query is what I was going to send to the syslog. And so it was up to whoever was writing that query or whoever was like generating that query to generate what it had. And, and that made sense because my code's job was just a simple transport. It's like, I don't really care what's in here. I don't, you know, I don't have any rules or anything per se. Like uh, my only job is to get this from point A to point B, and so I think that was a good use of of dynamic there because it had no sort of ownership. There's nothing to buffer. Like the the UI, like the two points both already had that contract.
0: Yeah, so I guess the best would say is it's it would definitely allow us to be lazy. <laughs> and and it would definitely break everything that we learned from like a clean architecture and uh, onion architecture kind of approach, right? Well, yeah, it is I would so agree. Depending on the usage of it, for sure.
1: Yeah, I like it. So use sparingly. So maybe, yeah. I mean, if I went somewhere and like saw like a whole web service here that was all built around dynamic, I'm like, oh man, right.
0: But what if? What if? Maybe it's okay if the method that's using the dynamic only has like, you know, two lines in it, right? Then that's where, to Alan's point about the DTO, it's like, well, why are you going to spin up a DTO just for this? Like, you know, there's two lines of code and only one of them is using this thing that's passed in, right? Maybe.
1: I hate na- I hate creating new classes, so I'm with you there. <laughs> but now that we got named tuples in C Sharp, uh, I'm more prone to it. Yeah. yeah. I hate creating a new class. It's like, well let me find some name to name these three properties. Uh, like as well, opposed that's to the this part. That has these six.
0: It is. Right. The naming yeah. is gonna take like all day long.
1: Yeah, it's <laughs> like the name the name of this class is whatever damn data I need for this method.
0: <laughs> uh, should we create should we create tickets in our ticketing system for naming things? Spend three hours naming this variable? No, I'm just kidding. That's right.
2: The ticket yeah. itself was only 4 hours but 3 hours of that was naming it. So hey
1: every pull request uh you need to kick back with at least 3 name change recommendations. <laughs> oh man. Oh that would yeah.
0: actually be an awesome thing for a pull request like or for for a pull, uh a review of a pull request is like hey you got to at least like make some kind of recommendation. Yeah. X number of recommendations or change. else you didn't really review it. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I'm not doing any more pull requests.
2: Thanks, guys. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Merge to master.
2: That's right. Done. Cool. All right. So so we've we've kind of gone back over stuff, went on a bunch of tangents, and you know, hopefully you guys got something fun out of that. The the resource we like is the imposter's handbook, which we can't recommend enough. It's it's awesome. And for a list of other resources, like we're we're trying to compile A good list of things that we highly recommend on codyblocks.net/slash resources. You can check that out. We've got a link to this book up there and like little brief summaries of all that stuff. So, you know, check it out.
0: (laughs) We we highly recommend (laughs) you use the term check it out. Check it out. Uh, All right. So, with that, let's get into Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. Yeah, baby. All right, so I couldn't remember if we've already talked about this, but Angry Zoot uh, Jessica in our uh, Slack channel, she mentioned this uh, tip where if you copy something into your clipboard, and let's say it's XML or JSON, then Visual Studio will give you some really cool options if you go to the Edit paste special menu. So you could paste that JSON as a class or classes or the XML as class uh, as classes. So pretty cool tip. Thought we'd share it. I Couldn't remember if we already did. So if we did, then I apologize that you're getting a repeat tip.
2: I did a long time ago and I don't remember what I like. This has been a long time ago.
0: I thought you I- did. And I could, I went back looking for it and I was like, I can't find it. So I guess it never happened. Yeah
2: I, yeah, I don't remember where it was. So ah, you don't get to take credit fix, for it. Of it. No. it
0: was in episode thirty-one. No, no, Angry Zoot that was got like it. Five years it was, ago, uh, episode eighty-nine.
2: <laughs> but Angry Zoot, you could have all the thunder though. That's fine. All right. So mine, I'm actually, I'm, I'm taking from somebody as well. So dance to die over in Slack. He shared that one of our our uh, previous Slackers is it Slack. Yeah, it is Slack. Um, Swix. He actually has a TypeScript for React cheat sheet, which is really cool. So we'll have a link to that there because if you try and get started on TypeScript with with React, there are some, some challenges there. And he's got some nice stuff in his GitHub page. So I check that out. And then the other thing that I wanted to bring up because it's new, I think as of SQL Server 2012, maybe. There is a format function in SQL Server. A lot of times you'll see people still doing like old school. Like say that one of the things that I used to see is if if somebody needed a number that was left padded with zeros, then you would like, let's say that you need a six digit number, then you would basically do a left string of six zeros and then concatenate the value that you wanted in it and then do a right six on it right? You can do that now without jumping through hoops. The format function in SQL Server is essentially using the .NET format function under the covers. So just about anything that you can do with a format call, like a, a two string and using one of the I formatters there, you can do the same type thing with SQL Server using the same data types. So I, I have a link that will take you to the main page talking about the formatting types and .NET, and then on the left-hand side in the menu there, it'll show you like custom formatting for numbers, for strings, for date times, for that kind of stuff. So, extremely useful and really easy to do stuff that used to really kind of stink in SQL Server.
1: Yeah, for sure. And you know, uh, Dan today's name in Slack today is Willie, the baddest dog of all. <laughs> <laughs> and his, I don't know if you've seen the pic today, but it's uh, it's my dog Willie looking like a smug little jerk, like he's being tonight.
2: Oh, that's awesome!
1: <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. Uh, so that's a uh, very apt. Um, and uh, my recommendation today is for a brand new podcast. We were just talking about .NET Core uh, a couple of weeks ago. I was talking with uh, Boza. If you're out there, original Bozo. hey about uh, .NET Core resources. And I said, hey, you got to follow this guy, Goprogman. He uh, he does a lot of writing about .NET Core. And maybe he's got something cooking you might be interested in. And the first episode has been released. So uh, Jamie uh, Goprogman has released the .NET Core podcast. Uh, he's starting that up. And uh, he's a really prolific writer. He's got tons of material. He's been writing about .NET Core. And he's been kind of obsessed with it for a long time now. So if you are interested in .NET Core, uh, then you have to go check us out. We'll have a, a link in the show notes there and make sure you subscribe. And we've mentioned him a bunch of times too, where he does us um, some other shows, uh, Waffling Tailors and whatnot, uh Devotaku that we mentioned. So um, uh, you know him, you love him. Got prog man. Check it out.
2: Yeah. Dude's awesome. Please do. Um, you know, I have no doubt this is going to be super high quality. I need to give it a listen.
1: Yeah, it's really good. First episode is on the history of .NET, uh, core, and he really does a really good, uh, job of going over, like, kind of how it came to be, differences between, like, ASP and, .dot uh, .NET Core and, um, like, different versions and talks about CS Proj and the JSON, um, I mean, everything just, just really good. Very nice. So that's about it for tonight. Now we talked about Big O. We kind of wrapped up some stuff talking about, um, you know, like time and space complexity and how much it really matters to developers We give some, uh, opinions and over under and, uh, outlaw had a great section here on kind of good and bad things that we struggle with.
0: Yep. So with that, subscribe to us on iTunes, stitcher and more using your favorite podcast app in case if uh, somebody happened to, uh, point you into the direction of our show. And uh, if you haven't already, please head to www.codingblocks.net slash review, where you can find some helpful links there to leave us a review. We can't express how much we appreciate that, uh, the reading those reviews. Definitely.
2: And while you're up there, make sure you do check out our show notes. And if you're on your phone or anywhere,
1: they're usually, they make it over there as well. Uh, our examples, our discussions and more and send your feedback questions and rants to the slack channel which is codingblocks.slack.com you can actually sign up for it at codingblocks.net slash slack Uh, so make sure to follow us on twitter too you can ask us any questions or whatever and uh, head over to codingblocks.net where you can find our social links at the top of the page